Part 5. Leave it to me. Detective Johansson did not have to spend much time wondering if the gap unit was a fit for him, because about two weeks into his dealings with the team, he had little choice but to remain. Leslie Johansson was a third-generation police officer whose father had earned his way up to deputy chief of the LAPD, following his grandfather's time served as lieutenant and the same agency's South Traffic Division. It was thus expected that the youngest Johansson male would follow suit, piggyback on these accomplishments, and one day become a chief of police. When he came of age, Leslie became Officer Johansson under the LAPD, and was assigned his training period in the Rampart Division, where he displayed his genetic excellence every shift. Unfortunately, this excellence was squandered due to a long-standing rift between ancestors. What Joe, as he was referred to by his fellow officers, would learn about a year later as he wondered why he was yet to be promoted off his training rank was that his sergeant was the grandson of a former rival of his own grandfather. To sum it up briefly, Joe's grandfather had been the supervisor of his current sergeant's father, and on what seemed like a throwaway B&E case, the latter was instructed to drop the case for another assignment, leaving the investigation to another team. What ended up happening was what the original policeman had inferred all along, and the connection blossomed into exposing a ring of murders that the department had been investigating for years. Naturally, the latter detectives on the case received commendations and promotions, and Joe Sargent's father received nothing, despite his invaluable investigative work. The young man brought this up to Joe's grandfather as politely as he could, but was rebuffed rather rudely nonetheless. He then made the mistake of filing a complaint against his supervisor and trying to take the matter as high as he could, believing that his career would never recover from the spurning. This did not go the way that he believed it would, and the result was confirmation of his blackballed status, which would culminate in him retiring at the pitiful rank of PO2. This Hatfield-McCoy dynamic continued along generations until the sergeant saw the familiar name in the academy class and requested that young Leslie Johansson be assigned under his supervision. The sergeant then proceeded to properly make Joe's life a living hell, giving him the most tedious of assignments, finding reasons to discipline him just enough to keep him off promotion lists, and overall enjoy the fact that, try as he might, the young officer would never see any glory in an LAPD uniform. Realizing that he had been foolish in ignoring his father's warning, Johansson finally decided to put in for an agency transfer, which his sergeant tried with all his might to block. Fortunately there was another family tie that came in handy. Joe's father had been an active member of the community, as was usually a prereq for the high rank that he held in the LAPD. One of his many acts of service was working as a strength coach with young football players all throughout the city. He would invite prospects from high schools and take them through a winter program of general powerlifting movements to help them bulk up and add a little pop to their game, completely free of charge. Back around 20 years or so, a young man by the name of Francis Girardi was turning a few heads as a defensive lineman for Workman High School, and to Deputy Chief Johansson's delight, he enlisted in the camp. 
one can imagine that Girardi set the bar for work ethic and overall excellence. And he became a regular attendee of the camp until his graduation when he was promoted to assistant coach. Girardi had initially tried to recruit young Johansson to BP PD, but he had his eyes set on the glitz and glamour of the big city's police force, despite everyone's warnings. Fortunately, when Joe finally decided to transfer out of the metropolis, Girardi was ready to welcome with open arms, and just like that, Officer Johansson became the new face in the Gap unit. Two weeks later, he would learn just exactly how out of bounds Girardi's squad operated. By this point, Joe had gotten used to the 2 a.m. calls from his boss, requesting his presence at the usual meeting place, La Vina de Mama, a little 24-hour Mexican restaurant a stone's throw from the 10 freeway. Joe arrived at the restaurant and joined the detectives at a table to find that there was a plate of enchiladas waiting for him. Although not terribly appetizing as the first meal of Wednesday, he appreciated the gesture and did his best to get at least one steak-filled wrap in his stomach. Being the rook of the group, Girardi only let him in on what was necessary, and when he did, it was at the absolute last minute. He told Joe that they needed to pay a visit to a little gathering with some bolens and rollers out by Walnut Creek. Joe knew not to ask any questions, but the mention of the rollers had sounded off. From what little he understood, the West Rollers kept to themselves and were rarely involved with anything Gap-related. After telling Joe not to worry because if anything went south, Kaiser was a quick walk away, he patted the young man on the back and hopped out of the booth, instructing him to leave his car parked and ride with the boys in his Explorer. Joe's gut was doing backflips as they cruised the mean streets, and he was relatively certain it had nothing to do with the mixing of his coffee and breakfast enchilada. Nothing good happened after midnight ever. And in streets like these, the freaks came out before the sun even set. Although he trusted Girardi, he was not yet convinced of his creative policing style. If they were going to break up a gun or drug sale, or something worse, he figured they would want some backup officers on hand. But the Gap Boys didn't even have their Kevlar on. When was the danger level ever that low? Joe's anxiety rose even further as the Explorer made its way up to the lone cars in the park's lot in full view of what he could only assume were established gang members. Two Mexican-American males, most likely the Bolens, stood by the trunk of their Escalade, and another duo of lighter-pigmented gentlemen rested against the doors of their Tesla. Girardi gave a final command that seemed as if it were meant only for Johansson. Be quick to draw and slow to shoot, okay? Shouldn't be a big thing, but in case anyone wants to act up, be ready. The lieutenant then exited his car, followed by his team. What is this, the Model X? What's Logano paying you guys? Began Girardi. When business is good, we gotta let him know, responded Billy Puglia, the handsome West Rollers captain, as he shook the hand of the lieutenant. The roller soldier also offered a hand before Girardi turned to the Bolens top guy, Arnold Quintana, and head enforcer Pablo Santilla. And although he did so with clearly less amicability, he shook hands with them as well. Joe and the other detectives stood back and watched as the discussions began. Quintana was very uncomfortable, and it was apparent to all around. He began by asking if they could make this quick since he had somewhere to be. Sure thing. You got your product? Girardi asked, making it clear to Johansson that the Gap was being asked to serve as a sort of moderator for a drug deal. He assumed that Girardi must broker fees to keep business flowing between the contentious tribes. One side unloads their stash, the other gets their inventory, and the Gap cops pick up a little side cash for the effort. No bodies, no problem. Quintana motioned for the soldier to retrieve the goods. While he did, Detective Naik and the others didn't let him out of their sights. Girardi began speaking once again. Hope you brought a counter if you're in such a rush. 
You know, I had to pull our rookie Joe out of bed for this. Poor guy was in the middle of a dream with one of the Kardashians. Look at him. Then right as Quintana's eyes moved to Johansson, he saw the life suck out of them. It had happened so fast that Johansson didn't even see the bright flash of the muzzle. As his ears rang from the loud shots, he surveyed the scene and saw Quintana and his soldier on the ground, both with blood gushing from their brains. He looked over and saw Puglia holding his smoking weapon, and over his right shoulder, he saw Detective Naik holding his. By pure instinct, he followed the cops back into the Explorer, unsure of many things, but above all, why they were letting the rollers leave the scene. When Johansson recalled his initiation into the Gap unit, the details became rather fuzzy. It was no doubt a highly traumatic experience, and probably the precise turning point of when he officially became an accomplice in the wrongdoings of the BPPD. He remembered the meeting, the feelings beforehand, and the face of the man as he took the bullet that ended his run as King of the Bolens. Guy never saw it coming. Johansson continued to avoid asking questions, but Girardi offered him a summary of what happened after he had dropped him off at the restaurant to retrieve his car. It was something about Quintana refusing to play by the police's rules. He was becoming a liability, and the Bolens were notorious for being uncooperative, while the Rollers were the highest degree of cordial. Some Bolen was making life hard for the Rollers, so they figured a way to kill two birds with one stone, to use a disturbingly accurate metaphor. Girardi comforted him by claiming that he didn't need to know more than that. He had already proven that he was a good cop and could be trusted for this complicated assignment. Girardi told him that a roller was going to call 911 in about 20 minutes. The call would go out to dispatch, and he and Naik would respond, doing what they needed to make it look like the Bolan shot each other over a bad deal. In the meantime, the rookie could go home, get some sleep, and he'd see them bright and early. The lieutenant then said goodnight and took off back toward the murder scene. Shaken up to say the least, Johansson, now wide awake, entered his car, caught his breath, and thought about his next move. He was a rookie cop who had pulled the family favor to exit his last agency, where he had a record that claimed he was an insolent and incompetent officer. On top of that, if he were to come clean, he had just seen a Gap detective commit a murder. Who's to say he wouldn't be next? If he needed any other sign of what the only option in front of him was, he looked over at the passenger seat of his car. Sitting on the leather was an envelope with his name on it, holding about $5,000. Just enough for a down payment on a lifetime of silence. Special Agent Dakota Culver entered the Baldwin Park Police Station that afternoon, and unlike Detective Desarian, he had no qualms about throwing his weight around. He encountered a cowering Gabe at the front desk, promptly flashed his credentials, and asked to speak to the chief. Once the niceties were settled, the Navy windbreakers promptly swept in and began seizing all of the Gap's files. Chief Ardalis knew she was powerless to stop the national agency, which had apparently been building a case for months now. The only thing her star lieutenant had protecting him was the fact that he was good at his job. Broad daylight drive-bys and an execution-style murder of an officer while he and his team were sitting in the living room of a known gang leader were sufficient evidence to take that away from him, and thus kick off the real investigation into his ethically ambiguous activities. She confirmed with Culver that she would enact Girardi's official suspension as soon as he came into the station, immediately seizing his gun and badge. 
She would also place the rest of the GAP officers on an indefinite administrative leave, after which they would be allowed to continue their gang suppression work under the leadership of Johansson. Girardi had clearly instructed for Naik to take over in his absence, but Culver must have known that's what he wanted, because at the mention of the name, he immediately shot down the request. Meanwhile, a separate team of homicide detectives were already working the McGill murder with the clear instruction that no one on the Gap unit received any kind of update on the progress of the case. Although, even the invading FBI suits knew that every last resource in this department will be utilized in finding the cop killer, and even a stipulation from the Attorney General himself wouldn't impede that motivation. At the Sheriff's Station, Dilly had received similar news. She was asked to hand over all her case files to the FBI agents, and after a week of paid leave due to the shooting, she would report to Sergeant Fuentes for her new assignment. Being a good soldier, Dilly drove up to her office, gathered all the documents, joked about the much-needed vacation, and left the rest of the work to the proper authorities. After, of course, securing her own copy of the file. In a stroke of luck and very much change of heart, police aide Gabe had also secured copies of BPPD's files on the case, as well as those she originally requested detailing what the department knew about Garza and Verde, her two prime suspects in both the drive-by murder and the execution of Detective McGill. Though he had ignored her initial request and hung up on her the first few times she tried to call, he eventually sent her the information she needed under the clear indication that it was solely to bring in McGill's killer before anyone in the Gap unit got hurt. In fact, he was so concerned that he even offered to be her liaison into the department to which she no longer had access. If Dilly saw fit to openly defy the orders of her superior and by all means risk her entire law enforcement career, she would have about a week to find McGill's killer, bring about some kind of order to the BP streets, and maybe even complete her investigation of Girardi and either clear him and hand him back the keys to the city's gang policing or get him and his accomplices behind bars. She couldn't think of a better way to spend her hard-earned week off. Although known all across the SGV as one of the meanest monsters that prowled the streets of BP, Francis Girardi was often referred to by his wife as Knucklehead. His Sicilian-blooded bride chewed him out for about three straight hours when he came home and informed her about his upcoming suspension. And she would have yelled more if the death of one of his most beloved detectives hadn't been a part of the reason as to why he was being investigated. She had thrown around curses both in English and her Italian dialect, while repeating over and over about how she told him not to be so trusting of the little scumbags that terrorized those neighborhoods. Then, after she had her extended say, she cooked his favorite meal and took off shopping, giving him his much-needed peace. As expected, his first text went to Gabe, and just like Dilly, he requested that all information be copied and delivered to him because there was no shot in hell that he was going to sit on his ass while the coward who shot his protege walked the streets a free man. There was a lot for Girardi to think about at the moment, and he was avoiding all of it. The odds were, he would never be a cop again. Whether cleared or not, the city council would likely demand his resignation, and that was the best case scenario, because if they saw fit, they would surely try to extend that punishment to his team and Ardalis. There was the concept of how he would earn money, which would be an easy enough fix for someone as creative as him, but there was the bigger issue of how he would continue living a life where he couldn't do what he was born to do. This actually had a silver lining due to the fact that if he was off the BPPD, then who gave a shit what happened to the city if the gang war broke out? He decided that for now, he would focus on finding McGill's murderer, and once that was squared away, he would either resign or face trial. The fact was, 
that the deeds that led him here were already done, so there was no use worrying about how that case would proceed. The suspended lieutenant knew that he could not put his detectives into any more risk, but he also knew they would have taken that bullet from McGill if they could, and the real agony would come from being helpless to find and deliver proper justice to the gunman. So he sent out the group text for Naik, Johansson, and Penley to meet him at a spot up in Oxnard, a territory free from both BPPD and the L.A. County Sheriff. Without fail, and with almost no lag time, each confirmed and Girardi rushed out. Although not customary to turn in one's gun and badge when placed on administrative leave after simply being adjacent to a shooting, Dilly fully expected her sergeant to ask for the keys to her challenger. Of course, she didn't offer them herself, and since no instruction had been given, she went ahead and continued to put those 6.4 liters to use as she embarked upon her off-the-record investigation. Diliana had cross-referenced the files sent to her by Gabe, and they had illustrated an interesting picture. Like her colleagues in the Gap unit, she believed that the murder at Lago's house was an accident and that the bullets were meant to send a message that neither ganglord nor cop was safe. The 16-year-old victim simply froze up at the sight of the pistol, and instead of hitting the ground like his homies, he took a few rounds to the chest. The McGill murder was a different story. That was clearly intentional. The question was whether or not it was the same person or gang that executed both shootings. It was beginning to become rather clear to the LASD investigator that she would be unable to progress much further in the case by herself. This was foreign territory, she had almost no experience with these criminals, and the FBI was playing both gatekeeper and watchdog in an ironic twist on why she was even involved in the case in the first place. Add in the fact that she had never even investigated a murder, and one could see the mountain of work cut out for her. The easiest course of action would be to reach out to the Gap detectives, being that the assigned homicide detectives would likely get nowhere with the war-ready gang members in this climate. However, that was also the most unlikely to succeed. Most blamed her for McGill's death and the unwinding of gang politics in their jurisdiction. They were all on paid leave, just like her, and were likely in no rush to keep bending rules while their boss and entire unit were being investigated. Plus, they were almost assuredly working on finding the killer already, and would look upon her as a hindrance, or worse, a spy, still trying to make the sheriff's case against them. Yet, as she pondered the issue more and more, she confirmed that it was all she had. So, here she was, about three car lengths back and two lanes over from Officer Penley's Mustang, noting how he pulled into the Monty Steakhouse parking lot, biding her time before she made her move and her offer. When Pendley, Johansson, and Naik entered the restaurant, they bypassed the hostess podium and headed toward the farthest table in the back where they knew they could find their lieutenant. Girardi sat with nothing in front of him, indicative of both his focus and his lack of desiring anything except exactly what he had about a month ago. Hanging in there, G? Naik threw out right away, taking the seat next to his partner, accompanied by a sympathetic elbow bump. Have to. We all gotta drop everything until we find this asshole the leader responded. Obviously, that's why we're here, and the faster we can get this done, i.e. before your guys leave is up, the better. What about you, G? What do we need to get the feds off the case? Naik asked. Can't worry about that right now. I don't think anything's going to come of it anyway. There's bodies dropping every day now, plus three agencies are going to be knocking skulls around to find info on the cop killer, 
So the bangers are going to be more interested in keeping their teeth in their mouths and their vital organs functioning instead of cutting deals for lighter sentences with the feds who don't even know the streets. Oh, for the media, gee, everyone wants to make cops the bad guys so they can swoop in and play savior, Johansson added. Penley threw in, Yeah, while guys like McGill take the bullets, then the suits get in the way of the actual investigation. Girardi noticed the dark cloud over the table and decided it best to call the waiter over and put it in order for a round of beers. After the stranger disappeared to wrangle their bruise, Girardi leaned in close, followed by his team. Here's the thing. There's a way we can get all this done together. We find McGill's killer, twist his arm a little bit, get him to lead us to the bigger player, leverage that to work out a truce, and if we do it right, we use that to get the lower guys back in line. Then the streets settle back down. What about you? Offered the young Pendley. I'm either coming back or I'm not. Pretty sure it'll work out, but if not... It's already too late. I hope that's not the case, but if it is, at least I can find the guy who took out McGill and get these gangs under control. Then you guys take it from there. You'll be back in the station in no time, no doubt about it, comforted Naik as the whole team backed his sentiment. So what's the plan then, began Joe, eager as anyone to get this whole thing behind them and get back to the policing they all loved. Girardi pulled some files from his bag and laid them out on the table. Okay, so first things first. We need to get Verde. No doubt he's beefed up his security since we last saw him. So I'm thinking, Chief, no, you have those? Interrupted a gentle yet powerful voice that was recognized immediately. The foursome all lifted their heads in unison to glare at Detective Desarian, standing just out of striking distance in her jogging pants, cotton hoodie, and bright blue ram's cap. She stood confidently in place, waiting for the first verbal assault to launch. Girardi indulged her although much kinder than she had expected. What do you want? We're busy. Can I sit? No, the lieutenant responded, quenching all hope that maybe this would be an easy endeavor. Dilly pulled her own copies of the files from behind her back and played her trump card immediately, retrieving a picture of the notorious soldier-for-hire Wally Pimento, then slamming it onto the table for dramatic effect. Recognize him? she asked. Pimento, Sureño contract killer. You got something connecting him to McGill? Having lied in wait for that exact question, she produced a picture she had come across through one of her deputy contacts showcasing Garza's notorious chrome-trimmed Escalade sitting in the parking lot in a church's chicken. That was taken yesterday at 1628. She then produced another photo of confirmed gangland assassin Wally Pimento sitting in a booth in the same establishment. That was taken about 20 minutes later. Girardi studied the photographs, immediately having his detective instincts stimulated at the sight of Garza's car in what clearly appeared to be some kind of drop between the two. He stifled his excitement and instead asked rather condescendingly if she thought the fact that two guys liked the same chicken sandwich was enough to suggest they conspired to kill a police officer. You, me, and everyone at this table know it's a start. Everything started with the break within the puros, so it makes the most sense that either Verde or Garza is behind the riskiest moves. Add that with the fact that my sources told me Garza's looking for your head. You tell me. Is it worth the visit? Girardi stared Dilly down for a beat, still unsure of what exactly she wanted from this. We appreciate the tip. Seriously, but you got to get out of here now. We're going to wrangle up the shooter, and then we have our own things we need to attend to. McGill was one of us. 
I'm sure you can understand. He was a cop. That makes him one of us. You guys may have been in the same unit, but Detective McGill was murdered on the same operation as all of us. Agencies, investigations, that all comes second to this. I can help you get the killer. And to be honest, you'll need me. Johansson laughed at the gall of the deputy. She continued nonetheless. Fact is, you guys have more to lose. You're all on leave, and if anyone either from your agency or the Fed sees you asking questions in the city, you're out of a job. All the bangers know that it'll only take an anonymous phone call to eradicate a gap cop. No bullets necessary this time. You're off the case too, Penley uttered. Yeah, but I'm the annoying MAPD detective. If anyone sees me, they just assume I'm wasting my time on what should be FBI territory. Plus, no gang members know me well enough to figure out if I'm still working your case or not. They have every reason to believe I'm working to put you guys out of commission forever, so maybe they let a tip slide. See what I'm saying? Girardi took another look at the photos on the table. The more he thought about it, the more he knew that the connection was the best lead he had. Everything Dilly said was true. They needed her. She might not be able to be fully trusted, but just like in their previous operations, she still had some use. Despite the preceding events, his gut still told him she was vital. He looked up from the table, again holding a long stare until the waiter arrived with the beers. Everyone remained motionless as Girardi took a deep breath. He then shoved his beer to a spot between Joe and Naik and motioned for the deputy to grab a seat. Driving down Ramona Boulevard right as the sun set behind the foothills, Detective Desarian's mind began to drift to how different the city had proven to be as opposed to her expectations. She had fabricated the illusion of the quiet city that BP had been so intent on projecting. Little did any visitor know that beneath a quiet exterior was a thick sludge of violence, conspiracy, and plain bedlam. This was a city where random criminals fired illegal handguns at children in the middle of the day and seemed to have zero qualms about who was on the business end of their bullets. Perhaps the police force was rough around the edges and worked too closely with their informants, but one had to admit they did their job well, and it was now her duty to perform her role up to those standards. According to Girardi, scenes like those would only intensify as word got out that the gap unit was out of commission. Dilly found a deep sympathy with Girardi's desire to keep the innocent and mostly innocent out of harm's way. Of all the things this crooked cop was, he was first and foremost a protector. The sad fact was that he was just too good at his job. He managed to develop a system where the street gangs had such a parity that no one dared step out of line. That and anyone who had that thought enter their head immediately recognized that this huge former defensive lineman and his goons would be quick to regulate the infractions. His give-and-take style of policing was so successful that he found himself with time on his hands. And what do they say about the devil finding work for idle hands? Although more than ready to strap her cuffs on the lieutenant, she valued the good he did create and maintain in his jurisdiction. It was complicated, but she would use as much of the good that still remained inside Girardi to get a cowardly cop killer before a judge and bring some peace back to the people of Baldwin Park. Her next step in the investigation, as bequeathed by Girardi, was to get a visual on the Garza safe house. The commanding officer had a list of addresses that Garza liked to use, and he was hoping the rotation had remained the same. 
She had already tried the first apartment on the West Covina border with no luck, and before she even got to the condo on the south side, she had received a text from Pendley telling her to hit up the Benham address. So she made the turns and headed all the way across the city in the other direction. Coming up on the street, she pulled over and looked at her map. The address was toward the north side of Benham, and she wanted to make sure she knew where to look as she gave it a quick pass. No doubt Garza's team would be on high alert for any attacks, and although she was in her unmarked car, these were pros, and they'd make her for a cop immediately. Always prepared for the worst, she sent a text to Girardi and let him know she was going to check out the house and would report back soon. Approaching an armed, on-edge ganglord acquired a heavy amount of finesse and even more poise. Dilly made the choice to stick at around 20 miles per hour, which she felt was quick enough to avoid too many eyes, while also not being so fast that she could gather something. As she came up on the address, she noticed there was no one in front of the house, and there were no lights on. It appeared that this was another dud, so she slowed her pace a bit to get a better look, focusing on the windows to see if she could track any movement. Keeping her eyes on the ground-level windows, she believed she saw something shift, and slowed even further. Sure enough, there was a break in the blinds as if someone was peeking out at the spy. Confirming her suspicions, she began to increase her speed to make it past Garza's likely location. But before she could hit the throttle, 9mm rounds began raining upon her challenge. From what sounded like an automatic weapon, bullets shot out her tires and she violently whipped the car around, smashing it into the parked vehicles on the street. She immediately ducked out of the side, doing her best to seek shelter behind the engine block as the bullets continued to rain down. Gilly reached for her radio and stopped just short of contacting dispatch. She would remember that she was still on leave and could be disciplined for continuing work on a case that was not even under LASD jurisdiction anymore. It took one more clip from the top floor Uzi for her to decide a chewing out was better than being the second officer added to the casualty list, and she radioed her deputies for backup. Receiving confirmation, she spent the following extended minutes trading fire with the endless barrage of steel coming from the Pluto house. Mercifully, the first deputy cruiser pulled up a few moments later, and the two inside helped her create cover fire until the SWAT team arrived and began spraying 5.56 rounds into the home. Almost instantaneously, the incoming fire stopped, and before Dilly could answer a deputy's welfare questioning, two Puros had been apprehended from trying to escape out of the back. The final three inside, none of them Garza, needed only a few more cans of tear gas to give themselves up, and the situation was thus controlled. This being the third time bullets had flown in her vicinity in the past week, Dilly was starting to grow used to the event, which made the inquiring deputies just a tad uneasy. Luckily, they had not heard of her suspension, and thus she was free to ask her own questions without raising any suspicions. Unluckily, the sheriff's department had almost no information on either Garza nor anyone related to this encampment. They didn't even know the Puros were at war. Since there was still no response from Girardi or anyone at the Gap unit, she realized that she would have to keep working this case with the only people who did have knowledge of the situation. She made her way to the squad cars loaded with the perps and entered the passenger seat. Deciding that she needed to get in and out of here before one of her supervisors showed up, she got right to it and asked why they shot at her. Naturally, both refused to say a word. Do you just shoot at any cop that rolls by? Dilly asked and again received nothing in response. Garza's not even here. What are you protecting? With this, she elicited a scoff from the banger in front of her. Are you guys with Verde? This your first day, baby girl? The Pluto replied. Fact that we picked up five soldiers in one shot tells me you must be Garza's crew. Or it is they're slipping and going the way of this madre. Do you even know anything about that? 
Then tell me. Why don't you ask Girardi? Everyone always gotta ask him before they do anything. Dilly leaned in. What do you mean, everyone? The banger shook his head and looked out the window, apparently done answering the detective's questions. You know I'm MAPD, right? I'm investigating him for corruption. You put me in the right direction, and he's out of BP for good. Without him, the entire Gap team crumbles. That could be what you guys need to get back to the top. You think we're that stupid? You're really gonna come in here and talk about how you can get us back to gang shit with a star on your belt? Look, Girardi screwed me over too. Let me know what I can get him on, and he's gone. Then I'm gone. You can be the one who gets him out of BP, and Garza won't forget that. You better check to see if Garza's alive before you start making deals in his name. Dilly paused at the heavy statement. She checked her phone quickly and saw no new updates from the lieutenant. He must be busy. But doing what? Did Girardi pick Garza up? She asked. No, four other white guys stormed the condo. He responded sardonically. Dilly took a beat and exited the car. She called Girardi's number and, of course, received no response. Though her panic was rising, she did her best to try to come to terms with the strong possibility that Girardi and the Gap Cops had once again misled her. They had used her information, acted like she was part of the investigation, then went ahead and rounded up Garza, and to put extra salt in the wounds, they then sent her right into a trigger-happy safe house. Unfortunately, she did not have time to personalize the play because four suspended police officers were now doing God knows what to a suspect for information on the murder of their colleague. The detective made her way to the car, which was now completely inoperable. Yet another headache she would have to explain to her sergeant. She pulled her files from the vehicle and took a long look at the bullet holes that riddled her beloved ride. What more would get destroyed from her work with, or rather against, the BPPD? With the situation now splintering away from her, with nearly every path seemingly worse than the previous, she walked back to the crime scene, thinking she could bum a ride from a deputy and maybe at least get some sort of jump on what could possibly go wrong next. Back on Ramona Boulevard, she stared out at the streets with even more disdain than she had on the way up. She shut her eyes in hopes of clearing her mind of anything Gap-related, which was about the best thing she could do at the moment, because if she could even imagine what Girardi and his boys were doing to Garza right now, she'd find peace of mind about as far away as it could get. That was Leave It To Me, the fifth part of the Bad Boys of Baldwin Park PD. So things are getting extremely interesting. We only have two more episodes left. And surprise, Girardi is nowhere to be found. So Dilly's going to have to dig into more contacts, try to figure out what's going on, and once more see if she can do anything about the murder, police corruption, gang wars, all this on her plate. She's going to have to figure it out. She's only got two episodes left to do it. So make sure you're subscribed, Spotify, Apple. We're on Amazon now and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening, and please continue to share. It's going to get really, really crazy at the end. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks for listening.